Good afternoon, and welcome to the 10th edition of the PALCAST, the podcast from the White Coat Underground. I am your host, Peter Lipson. I am an internist in the Midwestern United States, and I blog at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground, and occasionally at sciencebasedmedicine.com. So, today we have another in our series of on-location PALCASTs. Uh, the first one was the famous Cafe Palcast. The second one was the slightly less famous Backyard Palcast. And today we have the Kitchen Palcast. I am preparing for a party. Uh, in this part of the world, it is Memorial Day. And my family is off at a little local carnival where they will hopefully escape the predations of the carnies and the mosquitoes. And while they're doing that, I'm cutting up watermelon and strawberries and lugging tables around and doing all the things a guy in the house alone is supposed to do. But that doesn't mean we can't talk about medicine, because I love medicine. But let's, let's taste the watermelon and see how it is. Mm. You know, for seedless watermelon, it's actually really good. My daughter won't eat the seeded watermelon, though. She's just too young for it. Doesn't get it. Doesn't get how much fun it is to spit the seeds. She probably needs a little sibling so that she can spit the seeds at them. But I digress again. So, please excuse the kitchen sounds while we get into a few serious topics. Um, There was a terrific post this week in the blogosphere done by a blogger who goes by the pseudonym of Zuska. She's not an anonymous blogger, but uh, that's what she blogs under at um, scienceblogs.com at the blog that's called Thus Spake Zuska, which I gotta say is reasonably clever as a title for a scientist. And uh, she blogs about all kinds of interesting stuff. A lot of it is on the intersection of feminism and science and engineering. And, uh, you know, she's really just a fantastic writer. And she brings a, a I would say, a, a very direct and penetrating light onto issues that people don't always think about in certain ways. And and it's really, it's just a very valuable resource. And, and this... This week, she put up a very, very interesting piece called On Being a Patient, and I will, in case you can't find it, I will uh, put the link up on my blog when I publish the, the uh, PALCAST here. The, um, she had this experience, which I'll let you read about because she writes it in a way that's uh, very intimate and very powerful, in which she went for her yearly exam at her doctor's office and she was seen by a PA, and I've got mixed feelings about that. But anyway, she was seen by a physician's assistant, and during the breast exam portion, she found it very painful, and she let out a yelp. i got to say, I've had patients let out yelps before, because not everything we do, obviously, is comfortable. So she let out a yelp, and rather than the... Excuse me, the watermelon's kind of tough here, the skin, the uh, rind... So rather than give the, oh, I'm sorry, do you want me to wait before we go on? I know this can be very uncomfortable. Rather than giving that speech, the PA gave the, shush, you might bother the other patient's speech. And uh, it's probably not the most effective way to practice medicine. And uh, some of the reasons are obvious. It's damn rude. And uh, some are less obvious, and some of those are the ones Ziska brought up, but I'd like to sort of highlight some of them from the the, um, perspective of a physician. We are given unprecedented voluntary access to people's most intimate thoughts 
into people's most intimate physical being. This level of access does not come for free. Every Spider-Man fan knows that with great power comes great responsibility. And uh, it's never so true as it is in the practice of medicine. The power is this unfettered access to a person's thoughts, to a person's body. And the responsibility is, first and foremost, to treat that person with respect and to not violate the trust they've given you in allowing you access to very private and intimate parts of their lives. Now, not every physician is equally good at this part of medicine, but, you know, this is something that we try to teach as a physician educator. Uh, this is something that I work very hard to teach on a daily basis. And most people, even if they don't get it intuitively, they, they are teachable. They're educable. They do learn it. But not everybody. And uh, I don't know if... I don't know, I suppose, exactly what the training of physician's assistants is in every, in every locality. Um, nurse practitioners, which are the other type of so-called mid-level provider, I think may come from a different perspective. And let me explain. So this is going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but stick with me. Really, it'll make sense. Hold on. I got another big hunk of watermelon here. All right. So there are... There is in medicine a class of providers called mid-level providers, and that generally refers to nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. Nurse practitioners are nurses who have practiced nursing and after a few years of practicing nursing have decided to go back and become what is essentially a nurse clinician, a nurse who actually takes care of the more traditionally physician side of patient's care. So rather than taking vital signs and cleaning up and monitoring the medications, they actually help diagnose and treat illness. And different practices in different parts of the country make much more or much less use of these types of practitioners. Um, the other type is a physician's assistant, and they go to a you know, physician's assistant school, and I, I, I believe it's generally a three- or four-year program. It's you know fairly intense, but it's not the same level of training a physician gets. And it also doesn't have the same nurse's training. So while a nurse may have, an, a nurse practitioner has been a nurse and all that entails, a physician's assistant is well, a little more fresh off the turnip truck and might not have the same kind of experience. So some of this might have to do with nurse versus physician assistant, but I doubt all of it does. Part of it as Zuska pointed out, has to do with the position of both patients and women in our society. Uh, being a patient, as anybody who's been one knows, is a very vulnerable position. And being a woman in the society can enhance that sense of vulnerability, especially for women who have gone through the all too common experience of being physically, sexually, or emotionally abused, especially as children. And, you know, I certainly have taken care of my share of patients who have been abused or have been in abusive relationships as adults. And it requires a special level of sensitivity. Now, obviously, all people are different. There are some people who suffer the most horrible things and come out just fine and don't have a whole lot of issues at all. It's fairly rare, but it happens. But most most people, that's not true. And, and 
everything from a something really invasive like a pelvic exam to something less invasive like a you know a strep throat exam all these things are still requiring the patient to turn over a lot of trust to you so how do we avoid abusing that trust well one thing i teach my residents is don't have the patient undressed before you go meet them i mean that's just ridiculous maybe that's taught in certain institutions and maybe it isn't um I don't think it was taught explicitly one way or another where I went to medical school, but when you're going to see a patient in the office, you know, sit down, talk to them. Yeah, you're pressed for time, but you know what? They're about to be sitting in a cold room naked with you poking and prodding them. Give them a little respect. Sit down and get to know them a little before you start poking around in various orifices. That's just common sense, or it should be. Um, that really, I think, goes a long way to creating a sense of trust. And it also allows you to find out whether they do have any special issues and you maybe don't want to address everything in the first visit. For example, if I sit down and talk to a patient who's in for a full exam and I do get a history of, say, sexual abuse or physical abuse, you know, maybe I want to explicitly address with them whether or not they really want to deal with having a uh, pap smear that day. Uh, maybe they want to see a female practitioner for that part of the exam, or maybe they just want to put it off for a month or two, you know, just sort of develop a relationship with me as the physician first. Uh, these, like I said, they should be common sense, but they aren't, and that's why there's people like me out there who teach it. The There's still this unavoidable fact that being sick is a very humbling and very well, disenfranchising experience. I, I can think back to an experience when I was a medical student, and that's a time in life where you are doing some serious learning, where I had to go visit a patient who was bleeding internally in a very busy urban emergency room. And the patient spoke Spanish, and I spoke English. I spoke a little bit of Spanish, but uh, not a whole lot, and she didn't speak any English, so already it was going to be difficult and interpreters were not widely available that time of night. So I basically had to say to her in my limited Spanish, hello, my name is, you know, and uh, I need to do a, an exam, and I need to, basically I had to say, you know, I need to put a finger in your rectum to see if you're bleeding. And this was in the middle of a hallway. There was a small curtain I found to pull around. But, you know, no matter what you do, this is a situation where you really need to do this exam to save the person's life. And there's just nothing you can do to make it better. Now, that ended up actually going reasonably well. We developed a rapport. She did very well, and she thanked me when she left the hospital. But still, that's a, that's a suboptimal situation. And, you know, you got to recognize, as a patient, maybe cutting us a little slack as well, there will be times when we don't really have a choice. If we're trying to save your life, we might not be able to avoid doing things we might might normally like to avoid. So, But... Don't cut us too much slack because too many of us are in a hurry and don't give patients the respect they deserve and need. All right, that's one whole seedless watermelon sliced up. Give me a second to put it away. Well, I just took a break to do something remarkably dumb. I uh, just carried a refrigerator down into the basement. No, not a full-size refrigerator. I'm a doctor, not a mover, damn it. So... That is done. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yes. How healthcare professionals can avoid 
terrifying and humiliating patients. So anyway, when a patient is actually willing to share that level of intimate story, we all learn something. And in this case, the patient I'm speaking about is the writer of the article that I mentioned before. Now, there really isn't an easy way to build that into the medical education system, but we're working on it. It just might not seem like it sometimes. Anyway, moving on to topic two. Now, topic two isn't really have much to do with what I'm currently doing with my hands, which is using a paring knife to cut up strawberries for this evening. But knives may come up. Something that we've been talking about quite a bit in the blogosphere lately in relation to this whole vaccines and autism debate. The the, the crux of this is when people come up with these unproved and disproved ideas about vaccines and about autism, it leads to real harm. Although the harm tends to be somewhat different than the anti-vaccine people think it is. So, for instance, this atmosphere of vaccines cause autism thinking has created a pair of so-called scientists who are named Geyer. It's Mark and David, pair a feast. And one was originally trained as a doctor and one had an undergraduate degree in biology, as I recall, if I recall correctly. And um, these guys got it into their head that somehow autism, despite all evidence to the contrary, is a form of mercury poisoning, that mercury more than likely comes from vaccines, in parentheses, sick, close parentheses, and that the best way to get it out is to use chelation therapy, something we have discussed before, is where you infuse a patient with a chemical that binds to various heavy metals or other minerals in the body, thereby removing them. Sometimes it also binds to critical electrolytes, and in a number of cases, patients have died. Uh, what they haven't done is gotten better from this putative mercury poisoning because they don't have it. Now, all of us have various levels of toxic heavy metals in our body that may or may not actually be behaving in a toxic manner. They're small levels from living in our current environment. And if you were to submit to chelation therapy yourself, you would certainly see some of these metals show up in your urine as you peed them away. The, the important fact here is that that doesn't necessarily mean that there's poisoning. The dose makes the toxin, not the presence of the toxin alone. Oh, sorry, just washing off the paring knife. So, <clears throat> given that the dose makes the toxin, you know, we, we have ways of defining toxin-related illnesses. The, um, the interesting thing is a lot of these chelators, and I'm coming back to the guyers, give me a minute. A lot of these chelators will do things like send samples to un uh, non-legitimate laboratories, or they'll do something even trickier, stupider, and more deceptive. They will actually send a patient's urine sample after they have been chelated. And as we know, that will inevitably contain the substance, and they use that as proof of toxicity, which is, of course, insane. Uh, what would be better measure is to measure before and after. 
uh, even then, it's not clear that that has anything to do with toxicity. Anyway, the whole mercury autism hypothesis has been disproved over and over. Sorry, we had another pause there, just to let you know where we're at. We're moving on to task number three here, which is making the cookies. And don't worry, I'm doing cut and bake, but somebody seems to have gotten into one of the packets of cookie dough, and it wasn't me this time. I'm going to cut off the dry stuff here. Oh, oops. Oh, well. Um, excuse me. The um, mercury autism hypothesis, as we've said, is bunk. And if you don't believe me, go over to sciencebasedmedicine.com or scienceblogs.com slash insolence at Respectful Insolence, or the Neurologica blog. These are all good resources to explain to you the science of it. If you still don't believe it, I can't help you. The chelation therapy doesn't work, and the reason it doesn't work is because there's no actual mercury poisoning. Well, that's one hypothesis. The hypothesis used by Geyer per Afis is that we just didn't chelate them good enough. That's why they didn't get better. By, so what they, did, they they came up with this really, really interesting hypothesis, which is factually void of any you know, truth. And that hypothesis is that as these kids get older, testosterone in their body, that's right, testosterone, binds mercury and doesn't let the chelating agents take it out of the body. Wow, is that dumb. Um, despite its dumbness, they came up with a unique approach to helping these patients. Remember, we're talking about autistic kids here. We're talking about children with developmental and cognitive problems, a rather powerless group, and their parents who are freaked out. So what they've done is they've decided, well, if the testosterone is keeping us from getting rid of the mercury, let's get rid of the testosterone. And there's a couple ways to do this. You can either cut off the balls of the males, uh, or you can give them a medication called Lupron. And Lupron is an interesting medication. Uh, it's used in a few different situations. It's used in women with bad fibroids to help shrink their fibroids and reduce the symptoms of bleeding. And it's used in men with prostate cancer to essentially chemically castrate them so that the testosterone won't keep feeding the cancer. And uh, those are pretty much, the, there's also a few other uses. It's used in so-called precocious puberty, which is a um, condition where uh, a child enters puberty too early, you know, like three years old, whatever. And it can use, be used to delay it. So rather than, you know, follow science and logic, they chemically castrate these children and then chelate them. Two wrongs, in this case, make an abomination. So the Geyers, who have been supported by many of these uh, anti-vaccine autism groups, such as Generation Rescue and Age of Autism, these things, um, the, um, they uh, are opening clinics all over the country. Some of them are run by actual doctors, and some of them are run by various other kinds of non-physicians who are still, in this case, quacks. And they are walking around and castrating children. And this is somehow not a crime. So today we've talked about two basic types of situation. 
in one, we have a physician's assistant who unintentionally injured a patient. And in another, we have criminally sadistic pseudo-professionals who are castrating children. Uh, in the first case, we have a practitioner who may be remediable. Unless this physician's assistant is sadistic, uh, they can probably be taught to be more responsive to the patient's needs. When you have somebody who believes so deeply in a particular pseudoscience that they go around castrating children, really the only proper place for them is in jail. And that, uh, that pretty much wraps it up for the day. Uh, a little earlier back, I, I said twice, the, the dose makes the toxin. What I meant to say was the dose makes the poison. So just in your head, substitute that. I will post some links uh, on the blog at scienceblogs.com slash underground. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great holiday weekend. Or if you're not living here in the States, have a great non-holiday weekend.